Today we're talking to a songwriter, producer and all-round musician who's been nominated for several Ivor Novello Awards, a Grammy, won Music Week's Producer of the Year Award, has worked on countless top 10 and number one singles and albums and sold millions of records across the world. He's worked with such diverse acts as Cher, The Pet Shop Boys, To Girls Aloud, To Alice Cooper and once shared a studio with Hans Zimmer. Today we're talking to the music legend that is Nick Kohler. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Um, this is a this is a strange episode for Hype Club because we're filming it from uh, the respective studios and houses and flats and everything like that. So uh, we're going to try and work through this. We've never done anything like this before. The idea was to come to your studio, your wonderful studio there. Can't do that now. So um... <laughs> I can do it though. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime I call Nick, he's usually in the studio fiddling with some sort of synthesizer. <laughs> which is very fun. So we ended up working for the same um, music, what would you call the music writing? Production house. House, production house, yeah, that's it. Yeah, cheese factory. Uh, <laughs> that was it, yeah. <laughs> and I shouldn't say that. And um, so Nick was there when, uh, when I joined, uh, but that's sort of, I don't know, the middle of your career really. It wasn't, I mean, it's, for me, it was mo- the start of mine, but for you. The end of my career, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been plonking away for years by then. Just explain um, how you, not not necessarily how you, you know, your love for music as a child and everything, because again, you know. I hated it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, but I mean, just in terms of, you know, what was your first, I guess, big break as a musician? And um, yeah, how did that end up? Happening? My first big break, the first thing I ever did was I've been trying for years. I've been in semi-pro bands, driving lorries, God knows what and everything and then somebody called me up who I'd, I had a semi-pro band and they said would you like to go to Holland and mime on the TV okay. <laughs> and I hadn't been on a plane I hadn't done anything wow. and um, so off I went with these people I didn't know and uh, mimed in Holland and Belgium to somebody else's keyboard parts <laughs> <laughs> that was the start. The dream. <laughs> I've kept I've kept going like that because it's so much easier. I find you don't have to have any ideas then. Quite, quite, quite. <laughs> so you're so you're on the plane. What are you thinking on the plane? And you're thinking, what on earth is this happening? How is this happening to me? No, I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, I was sort of. I've never been on a plane that had those engines that fall backwards, and so they put when they break, you know, when they land, they used to the back of the engine used to fall oh, down, so the power to break the plane, yeah, yeah. and. Somebody told me that was the engine falling off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And then they were fiddling around with the air things, going, <laughs> and the, and I think it was, you know, we know what it's like when you get so involved in sound, any sound is you can hear it, can't they? Of course, yeah. And it obviously, was disaster. So obviously, you're. Um, uh, as we know, you've made a massive career out of it, but you're a more than competent musician uh, hey. most of the time. And uh, yeah. <laughs> Not today. So from miming, when did you get your first non-miming gig? How did that happen? Oh, right. Well, I was in a, a company called Beggar's Banquet, mm-hmm. and they, were, they just had a big hit with Gary Newman. And so uh, they had an Australian guy, and they were putting a load of money into him, and a friend of mine was a drummer, so he said, do you want to come and play keyboards? And... So, yeah, we played on that, and then that sort of almost took off and then limped along. 
and then died. <laughs> that goes through a lot of the story. It's really funny because this podcast has kind of been addressing um, what it's really like on the inside rather than, you know, the, you, you often hear the success stories of people and stuff. And, and it's, I think, sometimes more interesting for me as well. And it gives other songwriters and um, even people who don't do music a bit of hope, actually, that this, this business yeah. is well, yeah. money and cars and everything. And, and yeah, well, I think we, we carry on the same. You know, we're always looking for that next thing. Then after I'd been in this, uh, with this Beggar's Banquet band, this, uh, my friend who I'd been to school with had moved back to London because I'm living out in Surrey. He just phoned up and said, do you want to come and make an album? And basically we had downtime in the studio. So we used to do the 12 o'clock to 5 o'clock in the morning shift. Wow, wow. Just, just, we, so we'd all go to a Greek taverna and get pissed out of our heads, <laughs> obviously, because <laughs> otherwise you can't make music and everybody knows that. And, um, yeah, so we go there and then we go to the studio and uh, – the engineer had a great studio anyway. He was working with Trevor Horn at the time. So when he was all video kill the radio star and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we go in there and then we'd rehearse in the evening, go for something to eat then go to the studio and then record three tracks or four tracks or whatever because we everybody was a good musician because that was all around the time of stiff records when people used to just sell records out the back of cars to record shops and stuff. Tony, my friend, printed up a load of um, albums and then it started to take off we were, as it was then you know the NMM and Melody Maker and then New Musical Express NME magazines, the, oh, magazines just for magazines that weren't on the computer were bits of paper that people used to buy yeah. and um, uh, they started giving us good reviews so Warner's signed us over here for a lot of money right. and then all of a sudden A&M that were a big label in their days signed us to a huge deal in America you get a massive record deal off the back of someone selling some albums that you've made in some downtime after getting pissed. These albums <laughs> off the back of put it like that, yeah. And suddenly you get this great massive deal. And to me, that's like a sort of slight weird Cinderella story in a way. You know that uh, that kind yeah, of, yeah. You know, and it's um, I guess a lot of self effort and a lot of ingenuity and innovation has gone into that. I suppose so you you kind of did it off your own off your own bat and stuff. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what it's like. Everything we do is off our own back, really, isn't that? Because whereas we were both well know, you know, if you look at what where you've got to, it's always by your own effort, not by labels. Usually, I'm not allowed to say that on this podcast. So I oh, know I am. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter to me now. And off we went to America with a large quantity of money. And first thing that happened to me yet again after only having just flown to Europe and mined. <laughs> I was on a plane going to America in 1980, it was. Somebody gave me whatever it was, I can't remember now, a large quantity of money, enough to buy a house wow. <laughs> in wow. dollars that wow. I put in an envelope because you could still get $1,000 bills then. And then I didn't know what to do with that because hotels didn't seem to have safes in those days and I didn't know what I was doing. I was so green on every level that I used to hide it under the carpet. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> which is really even more stupid because the cleaner could have found it and just said oh that's good <laughs> but yeah and then I bought it back yeah wow and, well. and I could have bought a house but I bought a load of recording equipment of instead course. <laughs> 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 which, my, which Patsy was very pleased about. So she was actually. So you come back and uh, with with all this money, and you. Uh, so what? Start investing in your own studio? Is that what? Yeah, I bought this. I don't know if you can see it in the background here. There's a tape recorder right over the back, and a desk, and uh, and we can't see it, but there's a spring reverb over here in a drain pipe. So yeah, I bought all that, which was crazy money. So it was a yeah. lot expensive back in those days. To, to well, you have. could 
Yeah, to just rent a studio was even highly expensive. And if you wanted to go, you couldn't go to a decent... That's why record labels ruled so much, because, you know, even then, a decent studio in the 80s was like, I don't know, 1,500, 1,700 quid a day. You know, whatever that is now, I don't know, what, 6,000 quid a day, 7,000 quid a day, something like that. You're already taking matters into your own hands, I guess. Um, I was attempting to. <laughs> already bucking the trend. <laughs> Um, and that's, that's the thing with technology because now is you know most people watching this you know um, who know anything about music will probably see a lot of especially a lot of people on YouTube and Instagram and they have their own setups just on a laptop. Yeah. You can just you know as you yeah, know. of course as we both got them yeah. So from from there making your own studio, uh, so you got a studio in London or something or how did that? I know it's just in my house in the front room. Yeah, home studio. That's very innovative for that time. Yeah, it was all I had. <laughs> I had to go in the home. Yeah, so we were living in a flat at the time. So I used to just make loads of demos and there was a sort of cupboard in there and I used to put singers in the cupboard. That was quite handy, really. <laughs> Leave them there. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, I think I left a couple there, yeah. yeah sometimes you do want to do that. with. Yeah, that's quite true, yeah. <laughs> we won't mention who. Uh, <laughs> You're making these demos at home, and then what happens with them? Do, do they end up, do they leave the house? Do they leave the flat? They... Yeah, well, in those days, you made sort of song demos. So yeah. you were either trying to get some publishing action or something. Around about that time, I met the thief, who was, um, turned out to be, he sounded like quite a friendly person, but still being a stupid idiot. I, uh, he said, oh, do you want to come to this um, publishing house in Regent Street? And um, they're looking for scraps. Have you got any scraps of old songs you don't want? And right. that was pretty much what he was like, really. It was more like a sort of collecting old scraps of iron, really. Right. And, um, yeah, so he said, have you got any bits? And I said, yeah, I've got a few bits. And he said, well, there's this publisher who's looking for songs, and he'll give you a few hundred quid if you give him a few bits. So I thought, oh, okay, that sounds like it. <laughs> Fair enough. So off we go, and we go and see this guy, and he's, uh, he's sort of like an ex-sailor or something. Right. <laughs> he was working for one of these big American publishers. I didn't realise he was obviously an alcoholic as well. So he said, oh, everybody want a glass of scotch? So we all had a glass of scotch. And then I'd look around and go, that's funny. I thought I drank some of that. Yeah, but yeah. obviously he was one of those guys, you know, he was just topping it up all the time. So right. <laughs> by the time you left, you weren't feeling too good. Right. And then, uh, yeah, and then I gave this guy all these things. And then we went there. They had a little 16-track studio. We'd go in there and make all this stuff. And uh, while I was in there, there'd be this other band who were these young guys. <laughs> I was young then. Yeah. And, then <laughs> and they were sort of like really surly. Yeah. And I'd say, and then we'd make this stuff with another drummer who I knew as well. And then I was staying with my mate over in Notting Hill. And he'd say, oh, can you drop Nick off in Notting Hill? And I'd get him with them. And they'd go, oh, I said, are you going this way? And they went, no, we live in East London. <laughs> and I said, okay, why are you dropping me off then? And all that sort of stuff. And they were really sort of like standoffish. And I was thinking, that's weird. They're always hanging around and they're standoffish. And then it wasn't until years later that we were doing a Radio 1 session at Delaware Road. And the, the drummer just said to me, why don't you like us? Oh. <laughs> and I said, right, what do you mean? Of course I like you. He said, but why won't you let us play on our record then? <laughs> oh, wow. And I've, all the time I've been making that record in front of them. Wow. So then I heard their album, and these other songs of mine were on. No. <laughs> and then I discovered he was then selling the backing tracks to people in Thailand so they could write other songs over them. I, th I think I always say this, and I, I mean this in a kind of um, philosophical sense, but you learn early on to work out that 
being ripped off or being um, taken advantage of in the music business. Yeah. Kind of a, a kind of a given, I think. Um, you don't have the choice sometimes, you know, like when we, you know, when I started off, you don't have any money. And so somebody goes, do you want to sign this deal? And you're not quite sure, but it could be maybe you're going somewhere, but at least you've got a bit more money to pay your rent or all those things or buy some more equipment. And so you sort of weigh up. Well, sometimes you just jump in, obviously, when, at the start. And maybe that's a good thing because you meet somebody who then in turn generates another band or another stream of income or a writing success or what can you do? You know, the first deal I signed was, was, uh, was I have to say, my lawyer said it was in the bottom quarter of the deals that came across his desk that day. <laughs> and uh, he's putting that nicely. But, in the, you know, in the way that, that music goes, it's a very social experience. And obviously we're being isolated at the moment, so we're going to be social. <laughs> but it's a social experience and, you know, you will inevitably just meet people. You know, if you're any good mm. and you're a nice person, I feel that your contacts grow and, and it's like a network. And it's almost like, you know, I mean, I think you know, people should be fair with the deals they give people. But yeah, totally. But, but you know, that's another subject. But um, yeah, you, you know, you learn, to, you learn to grow and stuff and you meet people. And then as, as your stock rises and stuff, you get better deals and you get a bit more savvy and you know more people. And there's, you don't have to have just one opportunity in order to, to make you successful. So, um, so um, <laughs> making someone else's album, <laughs> you, what happened after that? that? I think there was more disaster after that. Yeah, more disaster. I to remember. Yeah, because I... I didn't quite know what was going on then, you know, because it was sort of everything had been blown out of the water. And that was one of the lessons I learned at that point was because the music style used to change so quickly. So every, there'd be something bubbling up as being successful. And then, over, you know, every four or five years or maybe less, the next thing would come along. And I realized if you were still identified with the old scene by the record label, you suddenly didn't have any work anymore because they assumed you were part of the old section. So you then had to, so you, that's what I learned was jump, <laughs> hide, run, jump, <laughs> and then, you know, just get on with the next thing. And I've, I've always loved, not only have I always loved songwriting, but I love gear. Mm-hmm. And all around that time, all the d- new digital stuff was coming out. And it was just like, wow, wow, if I can get my hands on that, I'm programming a Lindrum, I'm doing this, I'm linking everything, because I love the computerized side of everything. So being able to start to link all the machines together and get rid of the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Drummers were very arrogant in those days because there were so few good ones. Really? Wow, okay. So when I showed somebody my, one of the first drum machines I've got, they got really angry. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> so the Luddites of the, uh, of the 80s. Luddites, yeah. Um, drumites. And, and, yeah, <laughs> the drumites. Isn't that on toast the other day? Uh, <laughs> I think you did, yeah. The technology thing is an interesting one because, um, you know, I mean, Frank Zappa once said there's no musical revolution without a fashion revolution. And I suppose it's also that that sort of goes for technology as well. And I guess with, with new technology comes new sounds, comes new genres, comes new ideas, you know. So, yeah, yeah. you know, now obviously, you know, technology is still advancing, but we pretty much have access to so many sounds. Whereas when you were, were um, doing a lot of stuff in, in the 80s and stuff, new sounds are literally being invented. Yeah, when well, new synthesizers all the time coming out. So, you know, because I was a session musician, I used to, that's what I was doing in the 80s. I was just driving, I'd do three sessions a day. So I'd just drive London, around London all day and then do a gig in the evening probably. And then uh, it could be anything. You didn't know. You turned up and with a couple of, I had a Prophet 5 and uh, an Odyssey and a Wurlitzer. And I just used to go wherever I went if, I would, if there was enough work going on. And so 
it could be anything. And you, you, you never knew. Turn up and, and they just ask you to, they just say, we've got this track, we want you to play. Yeah. Or try something out. And, and um, when you came into the studio, were, were people uh, amazed at the technology? Was there a lot of talk around it? What was the... Uh, oh, yeah, no. I mean, when I first, in, in 1985, I bought this thing called a TX-816, Yamaha TX-8, which is eight DX-7s in a rack. And it was the moment where they were going, we don't need knobs anymore, obviously. Of course you don't. <laughs> eight synthesizers are the most complicated synthesizers and no knobs, the obvious answer. So, um, uh, and then you ran it off this QX1 hardware sequencer that you had to type everything into and all the rest of that. So when did it get off? the hardware sequencing onto the first time you actually sat down at a computer and programmed that was at the atari right. 1986 i'd just been out to la yet again uh, another so. disaster yeah. and <laughs> 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 yeah so i came back and i went and i saw this atari it was called the pro 24 then so i went and uh, to this special place because everything was in special places locked doors and do you want to see a fair light it was all a bit like yeah, yeah. <laughs> porno really yeah you how did you get in no you're not allowed in because you get enough money and all that sort of stuff so yeah i went and bought it and it was like a thousand quid or something which was you know like again three or four thousand quid just for the atari because i was one of the first people in london to have a setup like that yeah. and people would I'd put it up and press the button and everything would play obviously because i had everything it must have been so good. yeah and people would go oh my god i want this book and people would just rent it off me. It was great. And I could go home then. So you, so you were, you working on the Atari, and then that must have led to um, specific type of genre jobs, I guess, coming in um, because of the the way the music was. Because um, it's not like yeah. you're you're playing. I think people were just getting into the fact you you know they were the sound was coming through. Yeah, yeah. So you'd have you know to be able to program everything and change it all and hear it before you put it onto tape and everything. So it was all moving really, really quickly. You know, there'd be another synthesizer or there'd be another sampler or there'd be you know, a reverb, digital reverb. That's a good example. All those sounds off those records, uh, you know, couldn't be done before because of the reverse reverb and things like that. Obviously, that was all physical. You want to feel like you're keeping up with what's going on in, in the technology. And you were talking earlier about not wanting to be sort of left behind in terms of what yeah. But you, you must have just been amassing gear. Like it, there was no got, it was too expensive. You couldn't amass it like that. <laughs> so mm. I was still buying gear instead of houses at that point. Yeah. So it, that's funny because the technology is actually uh, it really it really is very directly affecting trends. Really, oh, totally all through the eighties. Really, if you look at Prince, Michael Jackson, all those things, you know, the, the synthesizer developers like the Roland D fifty. Roland actually gave it to Michael Jackson to make Bad or whatever or Thriller or can't remember which one it was but that's you know they'd hold it back and give it to somebody to drive the sales forward. You ended up working with um, what, what many people have described as a, a stadium house band um, called the KF <laughs> um, which was heavily reliant on um, your programming skills um, and if you listen to um, I would suggest uh, people go listen to those records because they are really well programmed especially considering how difficult it must have been in those days. And you, obviously you can tell us firsthand in a second, but cutting up vocals and stuff and, and, and Samples stuff. at that point, yeah. How did that um, end up happening? What was your first major challenge working with? Uh, uh, oh, well, basically it was that band I was telling you about who, you know, stole me and I was making the records yeah. for other people. I'd somehow got invited to when they were working with Mike Chapman in LA. So we 
but this was as it was caving because they discovered this guy was ripping them off something stole all the publishing money as well and uh bill drummond who's in the klf he was uh the a and r man at warner's wow. so, so they had us with mike chapman he had three artists he had little richard in another room okay. the rock and roll artist through don't know and i can't remember who the other one was but um and he basically came back from there and smashed his office up wow. and decided he was going to make dance records and because, <laughs> <laughs> and because he'd seen now i could program and everything i had the computers and things he said oh could you and we were all working in Dagenham at the time at the studio that was cheap. It was a great studio. Yeah. <laughs> LA to Dagenham, yeah. Yeah, they started, they were making Chicago house records. It was 19, oh, it was all piano. That's what it was. Yeah, it was 1986. So we came back from there and all the go-go records, like the Chicago go-go records, which they did actually use on Save to the Rhythm. Okay. Which is, you know that beat on that. Yeah. that is, that's a two-bar loop. Well, they spent three months getting that. My goodness. And that's what they took from this one go-go drummer. And then but that sort of set, yet again, set the pattern for the sound. So we started, they were sort of making records like that. And at that point, the samplers just got, the memory got a bit bigger. Mm. So everybody was starting to sample records. And then everybody bought records, second-hand records, and went through all the old loop, you know, and then, as you know, the A-Main break and all the these breaks that have become famous over the years yeah so we'd link all those together and then of course you could program the beats and everything or basically sample the beats and then be, they were all piano records because that's what the style was and then that gradually morphed into the rave scene through drugs obviously okay. <laughs> i'm not going to ask you how many drugs you oh, i didn't <laughs> i never saw any <laughs> no, no obviously there's loads of drugs and um uh <laughs> Because <laughs> that's what I didn't realize that until that's what I realized later on why the drums couldn't be changed. Because I've often when I got to about 92, I was getting bored because I've been making dance records for six years then yeah. and I wanted to do something else. And it was all like you can't change the ho hat, must always be the 909 open hi hat, the really? drum must always be whatever it was, the 909 mix with something else, or and and that was because of the drugs because they didn't want the you know the records you could cross play the records obviously that's where DJing came from okay. because that's why you know being able to segue all the records so they had and that's stuff. what the drugs did because right. nobody knew you know they didn't if you suddenly put in another snare you know like a rock snare or something <laughs> everyone panicking because the snares <laughs> yeah exactly what was the first uh success you had with the KLF oh the KLF uh what time was love I suppose Oh no, hang on, it wasn't that we'd already made some other records before then, haven't we? Have we made um, Doctor in the TARDIS? Yeah. <laughs> Explain what that was. <laughs> oh God, I, it was a car. The artist was a car that had come from another planet. He <laughs> <laughs> was called Ford Time Lord. <laughs> Who is this guy I used to work with? He used to lie in the back underneath a load of damp carpets right. with a microphone, and then the and then all the journalists would have to come and ask him how he made the record. <laughs> but they didn't like that. They got really shirty because they they were <laughs> because they were basically saying, "No, we want the lowdown. We want to know who it really is." Yeah, right, right. We're not having any of this, he's come from another planet stuff. So they started to try and go really oddly about it. Right. And then, um, obviously, it just went straight to number one. Of course, wow. So, as when number one still meant something, number one what? And um, 
Yeah, and I was in Russia at the time um, <laughs> on tour. <laughs> Obviously, there was a comedian called Freddie Starr. I think he died recently, but he was a very old man. And he bet the guy who I also played on that the record wouldn't go to number one. He bet him 10,000 quid right. for a Jaguar uh, sports car. Right. And um, he, uh, he said, I haven't got 10,000 quid to bet with you. And he said, no, I bet you 10,000 quid that record's not going to go to number one. Anyway, it's went straight to number one. And he came around and gave him 10,000 quid. Uh, a story you once told me about, um, I think you were in Russia, um, you were doing, a, you were doing a, an outdoor gig somewhere. Oh, right, yeah. I was doing an outdoor gig in Yalta. That was it. So basically, we'd, we'd toured everywhere, and it was been just, you know, before the wall came down in Berlin and everything, so it was still highly socialist, which is, you know, <laughs> you don't want to see it basically because there's no food no drink no nothing they had this brand new venue this is the sort of how, how it works so they had a brand new venue and for a folk festival that nobody was at right. and they wouldn't put us on there by that time we'd we'd, be, we'd become very big in russia they used to close down all the main shops for us to shop in and everything wow. <laughs> it's all crazy shit and um yeah so we ended up playing this sort of drive-through cinema but it wasn't a drive-through, it was just a big concrete screen with about 2,000 seats in it. It was a very small gig for there. We were playing like 50,000 seaters all the time. And it was so hot down there that um, they, all the gear, all the wax started to come out of all the transformers and all the gear, and the knobs on the mixer was bending over because it was... Oh. And somebody said, you've got to go and get a tent or something to put over the stage. So uh, off they went, and they came back with a circus. <laughs> <laughs> and they put a circus tent over it which immediately flew off <laughs> so then they called the army and then the army came along and put up this rickety old thing and uh, underneath the stage was a family living the security guard with his kids and it's <laughs> and a goat no they're really nice people but i was just thinking well surely it must be really difficult to get your kids to sleep every night when we start up <laughs> It was like a sort of Toto band, sort of, and um, yeah, and then and so we were playing away, and then all of a sudden, I noticed my synthesizers are all going, all stuck on this sort of like discord ten note chord or something, and I was going, what the fuck is going on? And I was calling. We had a Polish road crew, and I called the guy over, and I was going, I said, you know, everything's just jammed on. He said, yes, we're only on ninety volts, and I said, ninety volts, of course, it's jamming on, and then I realised it was pitch. Day afternoon, brilliant sunshine. They had a light show going as well. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Is are you on three phase?" And he went, "No, no, it's all just on one." And I said, "Well, turn the turn yeah. the lights off." <laughs> you know, so they turned the lights off, and we managed to struggle through this show without. And um, then we came on in the evening, and obviously the lights were on in the evening, and every time we were just playing away, it was all dong 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 dong, and then. Power would cut completely, and you'd hear this drum kit going, and then they would all come back up and go, and my sister started going, and then we came off, and after that night, we said, We can't do that again, you know, it's it's crazy, you've got to do something. And so, we came back the following night. Sometimes we used to have to do a matinee, then we played this one gig this one night, and it was all perfect, and we went. There we go. And he said, I said, what did you do that was different? And he said, 
oh, for you to play tonight, we turned off the power to three villages and a hospital. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> no, you can't do <laughs> <laughs> And then, oh, God, that whole place was just crazy. And then the, the one night, we sort of got that all under control a bit. And then the, then the tent fell into the middle of the, this is how the Russians were. They were so used to all this shit, though. So all the, all the, the whole thing, the scaffolding that was holding the tent up, just fell into the audience one night because the wind got off a bit. <laughs> and then people, were, they weren't like, oh, look, that could have hurt me. They were all just busy catching it and taking it down. You know, like, all right, they're perfectly normal. Well, each other, yeah. yeah. And then yeah, we were playing, well, I'll just tell you this last bit, edit it out. And then basically we were playing away and I was just playing and all of a sudden I saw these things, spots on my hand and I thought, what the hell are those? And I looked and it was, it was beetles. Tons and tons of beetles were all just landing over me and I was going like this. And there was a, I looked up and in the lights, all you could see was this huge haze of beetles. Oh. They were obviously all just hatched and were coming over <laughs> the thing. And I was trying to brush them off. And then all of a sudden, it was the drum solo. So all the spotlights went like this onto the drum. And all you could see was this, like thousands of beetles it was in the middle of all the stuff. <laughs> 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 oh, another day, just another day in Russia. Oh, goodness, well. <laughs> when did you move into? When did you say, oh, "I've had enough of touring. I'm just going to be"? I back. suppose it all happened around the time of the KLF and the rave scene, because it wasn't about bands anymore. Yeah. It was about computers, and you know, they never did any gigs anyway. But I mean, if they had have done, it would have been. <laughs> well, it would have been like with, with the stuff we did at Pinewood. Yeah. It would have been. It would have been pretty amazing. But they, um, you know, how everything is now. People have it on a laptop, or they have it on a phone, or they'd. A lot of it was records, two records, scratching and rapping, and all that stuff at the time. And so that basically broke the band thing down. I should think. After that, I got quite fr friendly with a guy called who signed Radiohead to Parlophone, and he had a few bands. The bands were sort of coming back at that time. We had quite a few on that TFI Friday, that Chris Evans that time. Yeah. So, but then it sort of went a bit bandy, but that was, I was a producer at that point. Yeah. But I don't think I really liked doing that. I only like writing songs, really. <laughs> and I was singing about in here with synthesizers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes trends change, well, they often change. And um, yeah, yeah. find yourself on the wrong side of liking it, I guess. You can... You sit there and you think, I don't really like the band thing that's coming up. But obviously, as a musician, you know, you can't, unless you've suddenly had mm. massive, massive hits and you don't never want to work again, um, you're, you know, interested in music anyway. So you want to keep, you keep yeah, working. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm always searching Spotify and God knows what and looking about to find things. You know, as I say, at the moment, the thing that really interests me is probably the modular thing more than anything because yeah, yeah. that's sort of got a bit of excitement in it. And there's, a, it's funny how all the uh, sort of acid house, sort of tech house, whatever you want to call it now, is you know the 303 suddenly it's back again but yeah. here we go again everything's cyclical and, and how, how do you how do you find interest when in the periods where you're thinking okay i'm not you know because you can't be interested in absolutely everything you'd be a, no i mean i look for when i'm not particularly interested in maybe what's on the top of the record american records have always got something to offer whatever they are because you just go how the hell do they get that bass so tight and clear and there's always something to like yeah 
or maybe it's not your favorite thing, but you know, or something that catches your imagination and you think, Oh yeah, hang on, I think I could see what to do with that. Yeah. Maybe I'll put something different on top of that. Of course, yeah. And then see and then of course that's how the Zedomania thing worked really. It was just listening to all the left field stuff, finding the beats, and then just using the classic sort of pop stuff really on the top of that, really. I was gonna ask you, how did how did that end up happening? Because um for people again who don't know Zedomania was responsible for, I think, over 40 top 10 hits um, in the UK mm. and um, had a, I guess it's kind of in music circles, renowned for having a, a weird uh, sort of non-conformist approach to, to songwriting where everything wasn't, you don't just sit down in a room and write a song with two or three people. It's bits of stuff taken from disparate years, disparate people, disparate times. How did you get involved and how did that, how did that um, way of working mesh with your original ways of, of, of making music? And a friend of mine who I've known for years knew that Brian Higgins, who was part of Xenomania or was Xenomania, wanted to get in touch with me. So he came and then we met a few times over a year and then eventually I, he was starting the new thing and I said, oh, well, I think I, you know, if I'm coming, I might as well just come all the time because I can't do anything halfway. You know, I've got to, once I start, I start. So we went over there and then it was pretty overbearing because nothing was happening and we didn't know what we were doing. And we, at that point, it was still very much dominated by American records. I was going to say around that time, it would have been about 2000, 2001. Something. Yeah, it was 2000. Yeah, 2001 it was, yeah. February, yeah. And so yes. You've seen the end of, um, starting to see the end of the Max Martin, uh, first Max Martin. Yeah, year. exactly, yeah. And then a lot of the urban stuff is coming through. Yeah, That's a lot of urban stuff, a lot of dance stuff. Uh, yeah, it was a matter of trying to figure out the style. We were just sort of going through... You know, well, as you know, you've been there. None of us were particularly well known again at that point by record labels for doing that for pop music or not even pop music was that popular. So it was a matter of building it all up from scratch again. So we worked, I think we worked, I think it was either 42 or 45 weeks in a row, seven days a week, 14 hours a day to get the level of it back up to something. And then luckily, you know, we got round, round, yeah, Round Round was the first with the Sugar Babes. That was a number number one record, right? Yeah, it was a number one record, yeah. And then, then and straight on to Sound of the Underground, that was a number one. The number record. one. And Great. so on, yeah. And then luckily, thank God, you know, the, the Girls Aloud thing kicked off and somehow, it, I think that was the best thing Brian ever did was made sure that the record label didn't give it to anybody else. So we wrote all the tracks, all the album tracks, everything. So we were able to stamp a style yep. onto it and obviously you know people liked it yep. and those records are are really um uh, interesting in the way that they're, they're concocted they're obviously made with a lot of different um musicians and musical input and stuff but they're still mm. musical you know i mean they've got this this um often highly um bizarre sort of lyrical matter and stuff and it's you know and i mean that in the, you know, the nice, nice yeah, yeah. But um, it's it's not your conventional kind of pop records, and they had a bit of grit to them. They had a bit of something weird about them. And when you start having a, a roll of number ones and stuff, what, what what are you thinking in your head? I mean, you, you're thinking because I, 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 I hope he stops shouting at me soon. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> There must be a lot of um, pressure because it's funny when 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 you're having success, you can go one or two ways. You can. <clears throat> I guess uh, sit back and think, you know, well, well this is, oh, I guess one of three ways, sit back and think, oh, well, we've got it made, you know, we don't have to mm. 
relax. Or second mode is you go into panic, panic. We're at the top. We've got to stay there at all costs. And yeah. the third way, I suppose, is go, okay, we're going to continue to work hard and be nice to each other. And um, it can, it can, it, success Probably can number two. I was going to say, success <laughs> can do some weird, some weird things. You know, you look at any... Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. But you come back on a Monday morning, um, having had a number one, and um, what's the mood like when you get back into the studio? What's the... Get on with the next track. Yeah, so it was never well done. No, no, there wasn't really any celebration or anything, yeah, ever. It was right. just... Well, basically, this is, this is when, when it got into its circuit of how it worked was basically monday morning we'd meet probably me and tim and brian maybe some other people but uh or depending who was there at the time uh but definitely us three and we'd listen to to beats and then we'd go away upstairs to our individual studios and uh, that would be probably there'd be John Shade from The Invisible Men, Tim Larkin, we did uh, Lana Del Rey, and then after this is all after that, yeah. Tim Powell and me. And then we would all go upstairs and we would listen to the beats and then we'd make versions of our own beats for an hour. Yeah. Then we'd come back downstairs and then we'd all listen to the beats and choose the ones that we were going to use. Then we'd go off and then we'd have to record all the vocals for Girls Aloud and things like that. But in, the, in between all that, we'd make in between three and five backing tracks finished, well, you know, the level they are. Some of those are the records. And then we would make those. So before people were making between three and five tracks a week, six days a week, that's sort of like 50, 60 new backing tracks every week. Yeah. And then those would be put out to the girls and then the girls would run by Miranda Cooper, who would do be the main thing. And then there'd be other people filling in the gaps. And then that would... Uh, be selected by Brian so there'd be 700 ideas and then they would be knocked down to 100 ideas and then so on so on so on till you had the last 10 great ideas wow. and then they'd all be fitted together and produced by Tim and me usually yeah it's crazy so it's 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 just the complete opposite way of sitting down in a room with a guitar or a piano or in front of a computer and saying I want to write about this let's do a song end to end in a day and yeah I don't know that never happened yeah well, sometimes what was quite interesting was some of why some of those tracks sound really weird is because they could have been a backing track that was written that day and then a backing track that was written two years ago that happened to be in a semitone lower or a tone lower so that when you use that as a beginning, it's like, dah, 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 and it sort of gave a lift to the track. But it was an complete accident, obviously. We did the hours we spent stretching, timing things. This is the other way around. Now the computers are all in. Because by the time I came to Xenomania, I'd had computers for a long time. So I showed people how to chop things and make them stutter and do all these stuff, you know, that we take for granted now. But they were sort of still going, well, there's a man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so it went on until as these things do, you know, people catch up with you and then you can't escape your own style. Yep. So the thing gets destroyed at that point. What happens because it's, it's an odd one when you're having a lot of success, especially the level of success Cinemania's had over the years, you start thinking, well, we know what we're doing, you know, even if it's obviously behind the scenes kind of stressful and, and, um, and a lot of workload, but what happens when, because other styles come in and, and obviously in like you said the takeover no one likes the same thing for for more than a few years if, if at best um this is why i guess businesses sometimes um go under or change you know or don't don't succeed is because they can't see what's coming and adapt to it I yeah think i think that's what i always used to say to brian all the time was basically you know what gets you there can kill you because obviously you have to change your mindset 
if you've got a new sound that's successful, you've got a year and a half or you used to have. And by that time, people then catch up with you and they start to sound like you because they figured it out. So your sound gets watered down. You try and make a new record with whoever who you've been working with and people don't want to hear it because they want the old sound still. So you're sort of trapped in... I think that's why things only ever last, you know, five, seven years or whatever they last because that's it. Something else. And good job too, I'd say. You had countless records uh, with, with, with those guys and um, obviously did all right for yourself through that. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, then, you, then you come yeah. out of that. And uh, what's life like once that machine sort of grinds down to a stop? Uh, well, sort of, yeah. I mean, obviously getting out of that full-on control factor was took a bit of time yeah because you as you well know it was a bit cult-like there and um so yeah i was i sort of didn't do anything for a year or something you know i was still doing something or fiddling around but i hadn't really decided what the sound was going to be because i got yet again got fed up with all that sound so i was trying to find something interesting to do so ended up obviously i worked with al weber and ended up with a track on Starlight Express. Yeah, so you, you know, someone calls you up or you bump into someone or you've met someone along the way and then suddenly, boom, you're on a different high road and you're off to somewhere else um, yeah. and you're into something else. So you stop, you stop being involved in musicals. Miranda Cooper, who was at Xenomania, phoned me up and said, oh, we're doing a musical and we haven't really got... She was working with some guys who do a lot of film and TV advert music and they just hadn't got very far. I mean, really, what they'd done was very good, but it was just over three months, they'd only got a couple of songs done. So she just said, you know, I fancy them banging out a few tracks because that's what we've always sort of done. I just started banging out a few tracks and it sort of off it went. Obviously, we did the David Williams one, and oh. there you go, the other, whatever it was last year, I won an award for it. <laughs> so <laughs> quite weird. <laughs> I mean, congratulations. Um, yeah. <laughs> Unaware he was even nominated. (laughs) (laughs) That's happened before. Um, (laughs) That's absolutely mad. So not only have you won songwriting and production awards in the sort of uh, mainstream pop uh, area, but now you're winning an award in in another area that you've never really been prominent in. You just kind of, I say you waltz in and and take it, but it's not as simple as that. I I know from having various phone conversations with you, that um, it's a lot of hard work and a lot of um, songs rewriting and dumping. Oh yeah, totally. Well, that's a good thing because working with Miranda, you know, it can, we can, she got the flu and she was worried she wouldn't be able to finish. So we wrote five songs in an afternoon. Funnily enough, whenever we present the songs, nobody seems to just go, well, can you change that? Hard to (laughs) <laughs> which is probably because we're so it has to be pop obviously because we're both so poppy and i guess you're you not coming from a musical in terms of the genre background yeah that probably kind of gives you a, a a different angle of attack as it were yeah, yeah totally so i mean yeah because i mean i know all the chords that they use but i'm not you know versed in the, the it has to go up here and has to <laughs> Well, you know, some people, I mean, I just do what I think's right. And probably what I'm doing is I'm imagining I'm writing a musical. Yeah, right. You know, right. Wouldn't it be funny? Because we'll have this chord here and then there'll be a flattened something, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gives me a chance to use some of those things. <laughs> yeah, but you can't get away with pop. It's kind of crazy, really, because, you know, you've been doing music a, a bloody long time. And, um, and you... Other people have said that. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> no, no, Stop no. It. But the, the good thing is, it's like, 
when you still have a love for it um, and obviously you've, you've got skills that no one can take away from you. So you just go, right, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to make musicals now and I'm going to win an award in that. And I'm going to, you know, and it's just, to me, it's quite um, an impressive thing, you know, looking at your career, doing bands, having toured in Russia, zapping the power from villages, <laughs> to going, going back to the West End. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a long long career span um and in between being successful at various different things you've um contributed to <laughs> soundtracks film soundtracks and things um oh, uh, yeah. mind um is uh, the really famous wayne's world uh soundtrack oh, yeah. um with uh, mike myers and um who was the other guy um uh oh can't think of his name now he always gets forgotten sad yeah but uh wayne's world soundtrack, and that was i think a number one album in, in the u.s and um yeah, yeah. And, tell us about about that because you end, that's how you ended up working with alice cooper yeah it was another accident yeah accident. right <laughs> yeah no basically i was working um for the guy who owned food records which was blur's label and a few other bands oh yeah that was um why i ended up, ended up playing bass on uh oh we're in trouble yes i'm on that as well and um uh yeah but he, he owned the label and he had a band called he was my manager <laughs> and um he had a band called Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction, <laughs> which is basically what um, uh, Guns N' Roses based themselves on eventually because they were all still an LA hair band. Wow. It, was, it was the support band for it, and they used to dress in all that sort of biker gear, you know, and um, they saw that and they changed their style to look like that. Wow. But, yeah, and so... He'd lost his deal, but the other guy, who was signed to Phonogram or something, with lots of money and disaster area as usual. Anyway, so we made, we made all these tracks, and there was this quite big producer who heard them all, and he said, they're amazing. I'm producing Alice Cooper at the moment, so I want to take all these tracks, and it would have been half the album. Oh. And then nothing happened, of course, as usual. Didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden... So this guy, my publisher at Warner Chapel, phoned me up and said, oh, do you want to go up to this preview theatre? There's a film called Wayne's World. And I thought, well, well, I don't know anything about it. So I went and we watched it. And I thought, that was really funny. I actually laughed, I'm, you know, without having to be pretend and everything. And, uh, and well, the rest is obviously history there. And it all took off. So off we went to work with Alice Cooper in LA again. We did some tracks, but nothing really happened with them. But then we were having his A&R man, who was a strange guy, uh, he just said to us, Dave Bell's a guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we went, what, is this our manager? <laughs> I went, uh, why? And he said, I wanted to use all your songs on for Alice Cooper, and he wouldn't let me unless I signed his act to my label. Oh, Wow politics mafia yeah well i lost all those covers on the back of that it was a two million selling album that was my goodness i did four million in the end across wayne's world and yeah another one of those stories so how did you how did you end up having a, a one song on there then uh, you ended up having a... they just they wanted it so badly they just thought it was the right song and that was a weird thing because he didn't he only wrote one line on it but because of all the rest of the lyrics, I don't know if you know the lyrics, but they're quite <laughs> somehow. I mean, I don't know how it happened, but he and Alice only got one percent <laughs> of the publishing. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up with twenty-five. I did come up with all the riffs, and then some. This guitarist we used to use to play demos, who ended up playing with um, oh, 
Blues had come somebody big. And he he then I heard all around LA he was going, I wrote that riff. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Fucking <laughs> and and, and uh, one thing just to, to come to a, a close here is is um, the thing about music it is sometimes the gift that keeps on giving, and, yeah. um, and and songs still get played on the radio years and years after they initially been written, and it, it, years after initially you made the first batch of money because you can make some good money in music, and you're still making money off a song you were involved with thirty years ago. Yeah, that's that's kind of crazy considering. Um, most people's jobs, especially in this in this time as well, you know, literally if your work stops, the money stops, you know. Whereas music, we're very yeah. fortunate in terms of, you know, radio stations. If you, you know, if you've written a song that keeps getting played or, or your film keeps getting played on TV networks and stuff, you make money from it, you make royalties from that. Yeah, totally, yeah. I think my biggest thing is still the... Uh French kids cartoon show. <laughs> again, again, we're, we're, we're darting all on the map. Yeah, you, uh, you were responsible for, um, what's it called, Totally Spies? Totally Spies, yeah, I did some of that and Tim did a lot of it, yeah. Right. And, um, and, and again, that keeps getting broadcast all, all around the world. Yeah. It's, and you just don't appear, you can literally make money while you're asleep, which is... Uh, yeah, well, hopefully, you know, with this new Spotify legal law case that they're trying in New York at the moment, where they're trying to pay everybody less, so... Yeah, that's another thing, there's, there's always problems on the horizon, we're always getting shot. Yeah, exactly. But you just got to keep going and do what you do, really. Finding, finding ways of making out. And uh, across your career, you seem to have made all sorts of weird and wonderful innovations and uh, <laughs> career changes. <laughs> um, but the thing is, your your musical style and your, um, your musical knowledge has kept you going and um, your ability to work with other people. And, uh, and for a lot of people, it doesn't work out like that. People, I've seen a lot of people end their musical careers or have their musical careers ended you know, before they've even uh, got off the ground. So it's... Uh, yeah pretty impressive and you're still sitting here in a studio doing what you want being your own boss winning That's award it. uh making money from songs <laughs> kind of the dream really for for, for everyone and uh, yeah yeah so we aspire to be um in that position um in a few years so this has been genuinely fascinating <laughs> a real treat so uh, thank you very much and thank you very much thank you okay cheers lovely bye, bye.